stuff with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer with HowStuffWorks.com and I cover all things what beep. As my old co-host Chris Paulette would say, Stuff What Beeps was the alternative title for Tech Stuff. Well, today we're going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is audio animatronics, specifically their origin with Disneyland. Uh, I am an enormous Disney fanatic. I consider myself a Disney fan of film, of television, of their theme parks. Probably not necessarily in that order. Maybe film first, then theme parks, then television. But I'm a huge fan of Disney stuff. And recently, when I was on a trip to Los Angeles to attend E3, I found myself with a day with nothing to do. I had hoped to book some meetings that did not happen. So instead of just sitting around my hotel room feeling sorry for myself in a city where I really didn't know anybody, I decided to hop on down to Orange County, California. That is the home of Disneyland and to go to the happiest place on earth. It was not my first time at Disneyland, but uh, this was the first time I'd ever gone to Disneyland completely on my own. And I was a little worried about that. Like, how am I going to have fun just by myself? Turns out Disneyland did most of the work for me. I didn't have to worry so much and I had a great time. But it also reminded me of how much I love the technology and innovation that goes behind Disneyland. And honestly, I could do maybe a dozen episodes about different technologies that were pioneered or perfected at the Disney theme parks because there are a ton of them that Disney either directly had a hand in developing or tweaked it in a way to elevate it beyond what it used to be. There are plenty of examples of that. Today, we're specifically going to focus on audio animatronics. And for those who have not heard what this term is or have any idea what it means, this was a system that Walt Disney's company pioneered to create animated physical three-dimensional figures. So in a way, it's kind of similar to puppetry, right? With a puppet, typically you're manipulating some sort of three-dimensional figure uh, beyond shadow puppets and that sort of puppetry, which is amazing all on its own. I'm talking about your traditional hand puppets, rod puppets, and marionettes. That involves manipulating an inanimate object in a way to make it seem like it has life, that it has anima. And that you are using some sort of system, whether it's rods or, uh, you know, the, the puppet is essentially a glove puppet or you're using strings with a marionette to create this illusion of movement. Well, Disney wanted to create something similar, only these would run on a mechanical system that would be painstakingly programmed rather than being under the direct control of a human being. Those figures, when they're working properly would replicate those same motions and have the same performance every single time. So the 100th time the character is doing a show, it's exactly the way it was the first time. So once you perfect a show and you program that into these these figures, you then have the perfect show every single time you run it, assuming everything's working properly. Now, anyone who has been to Disney enough times knows that's a big assumption to make. Sometimes things just don't do not work really well. I'll tell you about one of those times that I experienced firsthand 
later on in this show. But the technology itself is phenomenal. And even when it isn't working properly, that does not take away from how amazing this tech really is, especially when you consider what people had to work with back in the 50s and early 60s when they were first developing these systems. It is pretty amazing stuff. Now, the reason why Disney wanted this in the first place is he really loved the idea of creating a real three-dimensional experience similar to what you would get with an animated film. Animated films can be perfected, right? You can sit there and sketch it out and get it just right before you release it as a movie. He wanted to have that same sort of experience, but in the real physical world. He was a stickler for perfection, had very, very, very high standards. And um, and the people who worked for him, they also would end up having very high standards. Everyone wanted to make sure that they met Disney's expectations. Now, you can find animatronic figures in lots of Disney attractions, including the Enchanted Tiki Room, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Haunted Mansion, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, the Hall of Presidents, which would be over at the Magic Kingdom and Disney World, and tons more. There are lots of examples. There are also some attractions that had moving figures that didn't use the audio animatronic system. So, for example, the Jungle Cruise ride has animated animal figures as you ride through. You see hippopotamuses and crocodiles and elephants. But these were running on a very simple mechanical loop system. They were not specifically audio animatronic. They they worked on something that was a little less sophisticated than what would follow. So you have both at Disney parks. And I'm also sad that I can't have Holly on this episode. Holly, who's one of the co-hosts of Stuff You Missed in History Class, apart from being a brilliant podcaster and an avid historian, she is an enormous fan of all things Disney. And uh, and she doesn't just give me a run for my money. She leaves me in the dust. I love Disney. I have been to the Disney parks dozens of times, but Holly is a step beyond even my own obsession. So I'm sad that I can't have her here because I am absolutely certain that she would be here dropping nuggets of knowledge and trivia about these various Disney attractions that I have yet to uncover. So uh, maybe someday I will be able to have Holly on this show and we'll do a Disney-oriented episode about some other type of tech. Uh, in the meantime, there are some other podcasts we've done that relate to Disney. I did one about the Pepper's Ghost effect, which is used extensively in the Haunted Mansion ride. Pepper's Ghost involves reflective surfaces and using lighting in a way so that you can create the illusion of a ghostly figure uh, appearing before you. But what you're actually looking at is a reflection of a physical figure that's just lit in a very bright space, whereas you're in a very dark space. Uh, the famous ballroom sequence in the Haunted Mansion ride is a big example of Pepper's Ghost. So you can go and check out those episodes of Tech Stuff if this is not enough Disney for you. All right, let's talk specifically about what I wanted to concentrate on today. To do that, we have to mention Walt Disney, because he's central to our story. He's kind of our main character, if this were a narrative. Uh, his 
Full name was Walter Elias Disney. He was born in 1901 in Illinois. He grew up in Missouri and attended high school in Chicago. He was studying art primarily. When he was 16, he dropped out to join the army, but they rejected him because he was too young. He then joined the Red Cross and was shipped over to Europe and drove ambulances during World War I in France. Once his, his work with the Red Cross was done over there, he moved back to the United States and he began to work for an ad company. He was making film and animations. Uh, then he would go on to create his own studio, which saw some modest success, but then it ran into some hard times. And, uh, eventually, he had to declare bankruptcy under his first studio. But despite that, he didn't give up. He decided to make a go at it again, and he and his brother Roy were able to co-found the Walt Disney Company. And from that moment forward, his influence on tech has been considerable, from actual innovations in technology to how creators can protect their intellectual property. Now, not all of those influences have been met with enthusiasm. Disney is one of the reasons why the United States has such incredibly extensive intellectual property protection laws, stuff like copyright and trademark laws that protect well beyond the lifetime of the creator. Uh, a lot of that has to do with Disney as a corporate entity lobbying to extend those parameters. So Disney's impact on technology has been enormous in both very specific ways that relate to particular technologies to the way that those technologies are protected under intellectual property law. So Disney's use of sound with animation was a huge leap forward in the 1920s. Uh, Steamboat Willie being the first cartoon with sound and Disney himself voiced the iconic character of Mickey Mouse who struck a chord with viewers and propelled Disney into enormous success over the following decades, he would see a lot more success, including going into feature-length animation, which had not been done before, and he was able to uh, succeed with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And he also continued to see success with short-form stuff. Now, depending upon the account you read, because there are a couple different versions of the story, we actually begin either in France or the French Quarter in New Orleans, the story goes that Disney was on vacation with his family. And as he was on vacation, he decided to look into some uh, some antique shops. And he came across some various clockwork toys, like wind-up birds and that sort of thing. One specific toy he came across in an antique shop was a birdcage that had a mechanical bird inside of it that would chirp and sing, and it would make little motions that you could describe as being somewhat robotic. They were pretty primitive motions, but, you know, close enough to being an actual bird that you knew what it was. It wasn't like it looked like a um, a monstrosity or anything like that. He thought it was absolutely charming, and he felt that there was a lot of potential there that he could use to create three-dimensional physical animated figurines potentially in a theme park. That was one of the things he had been considering around this time, although Disneyland had not yet become a reality. So he brought 
the antique bird cage with the mechanical bird inside of it back to his company. And he went to some of his uh, top thinkers over at the Walt Disney Company and said, figure out how this thing works. So they took it apart and they took a look at it. And they began to formulate ideas of how they could create their own technology that would also allow for animation of this type, sort of this automated puppetry that I was talking about. Now, Disney was really excited about this prospect of having fully realized three-dimensional characters capable of delivering a performance consistently. And Jack Gladish, who was one of the engineers who would work on developing audio animatronic technology, one of many, as it turns out, would say that Disney once joked to him, I'm tired of finicky actors. I want to develop a fully animated, articulated human being to use in place of motion picture actors and actresses. So this was Disney having a bit of fun, saying that, hey, the real reason why I want to develop this technology is because then I can get rid of all these pesky humans that keep on asking questions or having issues, whereas the animatronic ones will just do what we tell them to do. And it's kind of funny because there's another famous director who said something very similar about Disney's cast. That famous director was Alfred Hitchcock, who, of course, made incredible films of uh, thriller and psychological horror genres, uh, things like The Birds and Psycho, that sort of stuff. Alfred Hitchcock reportedly once said, Disney has the best casting. If he doesn't like an actor, he just tears him up. So Hitchcock's joke and Disney's joke were very similar in that respect. This idea of the frustrated director who has to contend with the delicate sensibilities of actors and actresses. But in truth, Disney just thought this was a really cool technology and he saw a lot of potential in it. And he was always looking at new ways to make use of the immense talent he had attracted to the Walt Disney Company. Whereas a lot of these people started off in the animation department, where they were working on various films and shorts for Disney, they would eventually move into very different departments and develop stuff like the actual Disneyland theme park, Disney World later on, as well as visual effects and props and sets and things of that nature for the various live action films that Disney was getting into as well. So you had people who started off as animators kind of specializing in different areas. This was the dawn of the Imagineering age. There was no such thing as an Imagineer yet. No one had called it that. But eventually, Disney would end up referring to people who worked in this sort of field as Imagineers. They were thinking outside the box, using engineering and creativity married together to create really interesting experiences that you could not find anywhere else. That was the value that Disney wanted to create to justify charging people admission to come and check it out. So he was really excited about this potential opportunity, and he had a lot of potential ways of using this technology already at this time. He was he was thinking ahead. One of those was the fact that he wanted to open up an amusement park that would eventually become Disneyland. He thought, well, I need to have attractions for people to come and experience at this park. And he thought this technology could potentially provide some of those experiences. He also had uh, an ability to 
contribute to a massive event that would happen in the mid-1960s. That is the 1964 World's Fair in New York. That was going to end up requiring a lot of work on Disney's part. Years in advance, he knew that he was going to be providing four attractions for this World's Fair. And he knew that the the entire attention of the world was going to be on New York for this event. So he wanted to make absolutely certain that the attractions that his company designed were phenomenal and unlike anything anyone had ever experienced. And for that, he needed to pioneer a new technology. So all he had to do from that point forward was just invent it. No big shakes, right? So to start, one of the earliest experiments with this idea of animating a three-dimensional figure was what would eventually be called the Dancing Man or the Little Man Project. Uh, this would be of a figure that measured about nine inches tall and was meant to dance based upon this automated system or mechanical system, at least, if not fully automated the story goes that Walt Disney approached the artist Ken Anderson, who was working for Disney. Anderson would become instrumental for the design and implementation of various uh, elements in Disneyland. And he said, you know, you know what? You're working on a lot of stuff, but I want to I want to pay you out of my own pocket for a project that I really believe in. That's not really a company project yet. I want to create scenes that evoke the American way of life. And Disney had a very idyllic sense of what that meant. That small town feel that you get when you walk down Main Street, USA. If you're ever at Disneyland or Disney World and you're walking down Main Street, especially if you're doing it at a time when there's not a huge crowd there, it evokes the sense of a small town, maybe early 1900s, around the time when Walt Disney himself would have been growing up where things appear to be simple and elegant. That's what Disney wanted to create. And so he talked to Anderson and said, I want to have this idea of building this kind of experience in miniature, where people can look at the different miniatures we design and different elements of it actually come to life. So at first he wanted to get some paintings, some sketches of this. So Anderson got to work, and one of the first things he created was a Norman Rockwell-esque scene of a soft-shoe dancer performing on a stage, a small stage. So something that you might see in an old vaudevillian theater, and Disney immediately connected to it. He thought, that's exactly what I wanted to see, and he felt that this was a figure that if they could create a three-dimensional version of it, and build it in a miniature set, and it could move around and do its little dance routine for people, that would be phenomenal. So he took Anderson's design, and he then decided to uh, to work with a couple of other folks over at Disney. He uh, went to a sculptor who was working for the company at the time. Uh, the sculptor's name was Charles Clarence Cristodoro. And Cristodoro's dad was a famous uh, agricultural scientist and farmer who had written extensively about agriculture. Cristodoro himself had become a notable sculptor working both in the public spaces, designing statues that were shown in San Diego and 
other areas of California, and also working in the movie industry. He had worked for Disney once during the 1930s, left the company, and then came back in the early 1950s. He was given the sketch and told to make a physical model of the dancer, which he did. He sculpted a physical model based upon the the Ken Anderson uh, painting and gave that to Disney. Disney then took the model over to the machine shop, and he also brought in the animation department. Now, right now, it seems like it would be a good time to summarize all the areas that came together to make audio animatronics even possible. And I realize I haven't even gotten to what audio animatronics can do and how they do it. But it's important to understand the different departments to kind of get a grip on why it was so complicated and why it called for a multidisciplinary approach, because that's exactly what audio animatronics were. It, it required people of vastly different disciplines and knowledge base in order to make this happen. So in no particular order, here are some of the, dep- the departments at Disney that worked on pioneering audio animatronics. Uh, first, there was the sound department. Now, it might seem weird that I'm starting with the sound department instead of the mechanical shop or animation. But the reason for that is the sound department was in charge of the audio animatronic projects because those depended so heavily on that audio component. I'll explain more about how in a little bit. The sound department was ultimately the one that was holding on to the project, the project leader. That was the the head of development. This would end up actually causing some issues later on. There'd be some disagreements between the sound department and some other departments, and they were run by different unions, which also meant that they would run into these weird problems. There was a story in one of the articles I read about how the mechanical department, the mechanical shop, they might be working on an audio animatronic figure and they would need to disconnect it so that they could make an adjustment before reconnecting it. But they weren't allowed to actually disconnect the figure because that was a union job that one of the sound department guys would have to do. So they'd have to go and get someone from the sound department to come over to the the machine shop, disconnect a tube, wait until the mechanical shop people had made their adjustments, reconnect the tube, and then they could proceed. By union rules, the machine shop folks were not allowed to do that on their own. So it got very frustrating at times. Then you've got the animation department. Disney, of course, famous for animation. This was the group of artists who had studied movement extensively. If you're going to animate movement, you have to understand how movement works or else you can't replicate it properly and it's not going to look right when you watch an animated film. And more importantly, they had been studying animated movement in film itself. As it turns out, film, or at least magnetic tape, would become incredibly important with audio animatronics. They leveraged their expertise to help design not just the physical objects that would be animated and the actual motions those objects would make, but also the very technique for programming the objects. And I'll explain more about that in a little bit. Then you had the modeling department. These were the people who would make three-dimensional models and sculptures of the various components that you wanted so that other departments could use that as a reference. And then you had the machine shop. Uh, The machine department had to fabricate all the physical pieces that would be used in these various figures. And then you also had props and costumes that would end up 
outfitting these different figures. So there were a lot of different moving parts, both metaphorically and literally, as it turns out, when you get to audio animatronics in order to make it possible. And all of those groups had their own leaders and their own priorities. But the fact that they were able to collaborate and create a system as intricate as audio animatronics is pretty amazing all on its own. And we haven't even gotten to the technology yet. So I want to get to that technology, and I will in just a moment. But first, let's take a quick break and thank our sponsor. All right, so you've got the machine shop, and they were creating the dancing man, or the little man. And Disney decided that he needed to have someone in charge of figuring out the animation for this, like figuring out what moves would need to be animated. So he tapped a guy named Wathel Rogers to work on the animation for it. Now, Rogers was born in Stratton, Colorado in 1919, and he was a sculptor and engineer. He attended an art institute in Los Angeles and was recruited directly out of school to the Walt Disney Studios in 1939. He worked as an animator on films like Pinocchio and Bambi. During World War II, he took leave of the Disney company and served in the United States Marine Corps as a staff sergeant in the photographic section. And when he wasn't animating, he was tinkering. He was creating toys and model trains. And Walt Disney was also a model train fanatic. He loved model trains, including trains large enough to ride on. And he had a couple at his, uh, at his property. Like he, he had a private little railroad track. Because uh, he, he just loved trains and he loved that romantic image of travel by train. Um, a lot of the things that Disney worked on, he worked on while he was traveling via train. So he and Rogers had a lot of common ground there. And Disney thought that Rogers had a lot of potential to work on actual physical implementations, not just animation. So he began to rely on Rogers to sculpt objects for live-action pictures, and in 1954, he tapped Rogers to help design buildings for Disneyland. So Rogers went from animator to kind of almost like an architect. Rogers would also become a chief contributor to this audio animatronics project. In fact, some would argue that he was essentially, when you got down to it, the lead audio animatronic engineer. He is also immortalized, by the way, at Disney's Haunted Mansion attraction. You can find his tombstone there. One of the tombstones has a name that is a an homage to him. It was created while he was still alive. Uh, the tombstone reads, Here rests Wathel R. Bender. He rode to glory on a fender. Peaceful rest. So while his actual name was Rogers, not Bender, that's in honor of him. Now, as a reference, Disney decided to bring in an actor to actually perform a soft shoe routine. And they were going to shoot this actor with film, film cameras, not actually shoot the actor. Even Disney would not do something so brazen as that, but rather to film the actor as he was doing the soft shoe routine against a background that was a grid so that the animators could review the footage, use the grid as reference points, watch every little motion, and try and figure out how they were going to translate that into animation when they built this system that they were working on. The actor that they got, by the way, was Buddy Epson, 
who was originally going to play the role of the Tin Man in the 1939 Wizard of Oz masterpiece, but Ebsen ended up having a massive allergic reaction to the aluminum makeup that was used for the Tin Woodsman. And so he would end up being replaced by Jack Haley. However, you can actually still hear Ebsen's voice in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, it's his voice in the song We're Off to See the Wizard that Dorothy Scarecrow and the Tin Woodsman sing after they've rescued the Tin Woodsman. So that that bit where they're skipping off into the distance, the voice you hear is not Jack Haley's, it's Buddy Ebsen. Uh, he also, by the way, played Jed Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies. So if you ever watched that television series, he was Jed Clampett. Ebsen was a song and dance man back in the day, so it was a natural choice for Disney to bring him on. He would end up working on several Disney uh, initiatives, including uh, um, Davy Crockett. But for this, he just got up, he did a soft shoe routine, they took several takes of it, and they used that to be their reference that the animators could use and that the machine shop could use to make sure that the pieces they designed would be capable of replicating all the different motions that would be necessary. Now, ideally, you would be able to create pieces that did exactly what you needed and nothing else. Because if you design a figure to do moves that it doesn't need to replicate, that's time you wasted on that effort because no one's ever going to see it. So ideally, you figure out exactly what you need and you design for that specifically. Now, one of the mechanical engineers who was working on this project was Roger Edward Broggy. Te- technically, Roger E. Broggy Sr. His son was also working for Disney and would become an Imagineer. Broggy had moved to California from Chicago in the late 1920s with experience in machine shop training. He joined Disney in 1939. So... He was originally working on some of their live-action films. He helped design special effects for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. He also helped Walt Disney build some of those model trains for his personal collection. And Broggy was one of the engineers working on this Dancing Man project. He would later say that was a huge challenge, in part because Ebsen, when he did his soft shoe routine for the cameras, never repeated movements in the routine. So all the movements he did were original and not patterned. They weren't repetition. And that's difficult. If you're an animator, you would like to have that repetition because you can design it once and then essentially cut and paste it and use it again. But if everything is new, then you have to design it from scratch all the way through. It made their job more difficult. Ultimately, They produced this nine-inch tall figure, and they used cables to attach to various points on the figure, and this was controlled by external machinery. So you would have what amounts to a very complex gearbox that used cams and cables in order to control the figure. Now, a cam, in case you don't know what that term is, it's a rotating or sliding piece of machinery, particularly used to transform rotary motion into linear motion or vice versa. So in other words, you can turn a rotational motion into a back and forth or up and down motion, a linear one, uh, using these. Or you can use a linear motion to create a rotational motion. If you have heard the term camshaft in vehicles, that's what a camshaft does. Uh, This was not yet an example of audio animatronics, this figure. 
It didn't quite work on a full audio animatronic system, but it did help plot the course for the next innovation. And Disney, not satisfied with creating this nine-inch tall figure, wanted to create something more complicated. His next thought was a barbershop quartet, a little mechanical barbershop quartet that can move and dance and sing. He wanted it to sing Sweet Adeline. But the system that the machine shop had created wasn't really sufficient because the dancing figure couldn't make very subtle movements. It was all it was all or nothing, really, with each of the movements this thing made. It jerked around a lot, and it wasn't really a lifelike representation. The mechanism that controlled the figure had to be within a couple of feet of it. So this gearbox, essentially, had to be really close to the dancing figure, uh, which meant that you had spatial issues you had to take into account. So Disney's original thought was this could be an attraction where maybe you walk up to a cabinet, you plunk a quarter in, a little curtain draws back, and you see this dancing figure dance for a quarter. And then once it's done, the curtain draws closed and you move on. But the mechanics said, well, here's the problem. The amount of money it took to develop this and the amount of money it will take to maintain it, you will never recapture by going a quarter of you. 25 cents of you is not going to cut it. And you can't really go more expensive than that because at the time, 25 cents was a, you know, not insignificant amount of money. And keep in mind, this is the 1950s. So these initial attempts to create an animated figure in real life had kind of stalled out, but plans for Disneyland were continuing at the same time. The park opened in July 1955, but the first attraction to use audio animatronics would follow in five years. That was a ride called the Mine Train Through Nature's Wonderland, which opened in May 1960. And this was able to take advantage of something that some of the engineers had noticed. They said, you know, these small figures, they require all these cams and cables and everything has to be external. We have to build the actual power system outside of the figure. So you've always got to figure out how to mask all the cables that are running up to the figure. If we make the figures larger, life-size then we can store a lot of these mechanical components inside the figures themselves. It won't have to be externally controlled. You could actually build these figures so they have the internal parts. And thus you have a lot more freedom to stage them the way you want to. And this really appealed to Disney. So one of the first implementations they had was this mine train through nature's wonderland. Now, that ride might sound unfamiliar to you if you've been to Disneyland and you're wondering where the mine train through nature's wonderland ride is. Well, it used to be where Big Thunder Mountain is now. So Big Thunder Mountain is a totally different kind of train ride. The mine train through nature's wonderland was a slow moving ride that puts you through various scenes that were inspired by the Western United States of America. It was kind of the Western version of Jungle Cruise. So if you've ever been on the Jungle Cruise, that's a boat ride where you go through areas that have been inspired by India and Africa. The uh, Nature's Wonderland was similar, except it was a train ride through the Western U.S.-inspired areas. It included things like bears playing around in a pond. Now, that was the first attraction to feature audio animatronics. And I guess now as good a time as any is to, to explain what audio animatronics are. Audio animatronics take on these mechanical figures 
that you can power in various ways, and they pair it with a system that is programmable, that uses audio as its method of transmitting information and taking that information and turning it into action. So everything is based off sound, which is kind of weird to think about it, but you would store the information on these massive cassettes, these magnetic tapes. Really, they're magnetic reels. They weren't really cassettes. So you take magnetic reels of tape, and you would encode information in sound on the tape. And when you played it back, that's what would create the... uh well, It's what would allow circuits to be completed to create the movement you see. Now, how that all works, it requires a bit more of a deeper dive. First of all, the earliest audio animatronic systems were digital. Now, by that, I don't mean they were computer systems. This is purely mechanical approach. It's not electronic. It's not, uh, you know, there's no microprocessors or transistors. It's all mechanical elements. But it is digital in the sense that it's binary, in that you have two positions. You have on and off. That meant that any motion you wanted to make had only two outcomes, uh, a rest position, which would be whatever it started off as. So let's take, let's say that it's a human figure that you're trying to animate. And one of your animations is your human figure needs to turn her head to the left. So in the off position, in the rest position, she's just staring straight forward and isn't moving. When you activate a circuit, then she moves her head to the left. But she can't halfway move her head to the left. She can't move it a quarter of the way. It's either all the way to the left, as far as her freedom of movement allows, or it's in the that rest position. That's it. Those two positions, on or off, zero or one. That's why we call it digital. This was a little primitive. It limited what the animators could do. They could not put in subtle movements. So it was good for certain types of audio animatronics early on, but it had limited use. It also was limited in how much force it could use. Uh, These original audio animatronics used one of two different systems to create movement. Either it was using pneumatics or it was using solenoids. A pneumatic system uses compressed air. Compressed air is what creates the force that translates into mechanical motion in your system. So you would have tubes, pneumatic tubes, that would move through this figure. You would have them, you know, wherever they needed to be. And you would have valves that, when they're closed, do not allow air to move through. When you would complete a circuit, it would make the valve open, which would allow air to move through, which would then create the mechanical force necessary to make the figure move in whichever way you wanted it to. So let's say it's a... Uh, a bird in the Enchanted Tiki Room, which was one of the earliest audio animatronic attractions outside of Nature's Wonderland, and still exists to this day, the pneumatics would allow the mouth to open. The closed position would be the rest position, and it would allow the the mouth to open up, and uh, when you do a lot of opening and closing, it gives the illusion that the bird is actually talking when you pair it with the appropriate sound. That was one way of creating motion, but the solenoids were a different way. 
that was also being used in this digital system. Solenoids are a variation on electromagnets. So those of you who have uh, listened to me talk endlessly about electromagnetism, get ready for some more. So your basic electromagnet consists of a coil of conductive material. Often it is insulated copper wire. You run a current through this coil, and that generates a magnetic field. The magnetic field can then be used to attract any sort of ferromagnetic material. That's the case of a solenoid, where you have a core that can act kind of like a piston. So when it's in its rest position, the core is outside of the cylinder. Maybe it's positioned right at the very end. So the, the cylinder is big enough so that the core can fit completely inside the cylinder. And when you run a current through the coil, it generates a magnetic field, which attracts the ferromagnetic core into the cylinder, pulls it in. And if you connect something to the other end of that little core, like a cable, that then attaches to a piece on a larger animatronic figure, like, let's say, a mouth of a character, whenever the circuit activates, it'll pull the solenoid in, the core into the solenoid, which in turn pulls on the wire or cable, which is attached to whatever body part, the mouth, let's say, of Mr. Lincoln, and pulls it down, pulls it open. And then by turning off the electricity to this coil, it negates that magnetic field. It returns to rest position and Lincoln shuts his trap. And thus, by controlling the uh, the flow of electricity through the solenoid, you can open and close the mouth of one of the greatest presidents of United States history. And thus, magnificence is born. I mean, this was a an enormous use of technology, a very innovative use of technology at the time. So that was the basics for the movement. But that we still haven't talked about the audio part. That's kind of more the animatronic part, the idea of this animated physical being. But whether it was a bird or a president or a hippopotamus or whatever it might be that was using audio animatronics, the secret sauce was in that audio. They found that what they could do is create a tone on a cassette or on a magnetic reel, I should say. They could create a tone and they used these little metal reeds that would connect to circuits. When the reeds would vibrate, it would close the circuit and allow a current to pass through. So if you made the reeds vibrate, it would create a, a physical circuit that would end up making the pneumatic or solenoid system activate and thus be either on or off. You know, well, on, really. And once it stopped activating, it would be off. You could have your character open his or her mouth or move his or her head or whatever the action needed to be. And the reason, the way they would make it vibrate is they would use a resonant frequency. So resonant frequencies are the natural vibrating frequency of any given material. Uh, if you have a glass and you tap the glass and it makes a little ringing noise, that is its resonant frequency. And if you're able to replicate that resonant frequency, then you will make the glass vibrate just by exposing it to that frequency. So if you create a sound that is of the same pitch 
as an object's resonant frequency, it will naturally begin to vibrate. And if you then amplify that signal, in other words, if you increase the volume, you will increase the amount of vibration that you're creating in that material. So again, with the example of a glass, if you have a crystal glass, then it generates a particular tone when you strike it. If you replicate that tone and you amplify the signal enough, you can make the glass vibrate enough so that it shatters. This is what we see when opera singers replicate a particular note and they try and shatter a glass. Some people can do it, but it all depends on the glass. It all depends on the person's range and how how pitch perfect they are in creating that particular frequency. It has to be close enough. Uh, there's actually a small range where it'll work, but you need to be as close as possible to really get the maximum effect. It's a mu- it's much easier to do with amplification than it is unamplified. Uh, but that's the basis for audio animatronics. They had these little metallic reeds that would be connected to the various circuitry, and each one would have its own specific resonant frequency. When you played the magnetic tape back, it would play tones at that resonant frequency for whichever particular action it needed. That specific mag- uh, metallic reed would start to vibrate close that specific circuit, and then you get the motion. So if it's a figure that has several motions associated with it, let's say it's a bird that can turn its head, flap its wings, or open its mouth, that's three different motions. That means you would have three different circuits with three different metallic reeds with three different resonant frequencies. So that way you could produce different tones and make the specific outcome that you wanted. Otherwise, every time you generated a tone, everything would go off and you would have chaos. More on that in a little bit. Again, this is a digital system, so there's no variation here. You could not have the bird turn its head halfway. It's always going to turn it as far as the animatronic is allowed. Whatever its freedom of movement is, that's where it's going to go to. So it still had limitations. However, by creating a specific circuit for every single motion, you could make a pretty sophisticated figure. The individual motions were pretty primitive, but collectively, it could be very sophisticated. Uh, it did require a lot of work, and it required a lot of cheating, I guess is the right way of putting it. So, for example, one of the figures that Disney was working on for the New York World's Fair was Abraham Lincoln. And in order to make all the different motions of the face the way they wanted to, uh, they had to put in more components than could fit within the constraint of a human head. And they weren't, they didn't really have the option of scaling it up. They couldn't build Lincoln larger than human sized and get the effect they wanted. They wanted to keep Lincoln at the, the dimensions that they felt were important for him to get the feeling across that they wanted to make. So they had to figure out, well, how can we fit all these components inside a human head when they're larger than what the space can contain? And eventually they were able to make a a head that had kind of a bulge in the back of it, and they were able to uh, fake it with the wig that they put on Mr. Lincoln. Although apparently in at least some of the wigs that they designed for the the character, uh, the bulge in the back of the head was noticeable. So... Considering Lincoln's fate, that might have been viewed as being tasteless. But they were working within the constraints of a very new technology. Now, I mentioned that this approach had its limitations, that you could only be on or off. 
and that they needed to have something with a little bit more of a spectrum of outcomes in order to get the effect that they really wanted. That approach required them to switch from pneumatic and solenoid systems to hydraulic systems. A hydraulic system uses liquid, typically it's just water, as its means of creating that same sort of mechanical force. Uh, you can't really compress water, as it turns out. So if you just put force behind water, it will push against whatever constraints you have it in. So if you put a good amount of water pressure in and you use valves to control where that water can go, by opening and closing those valves, you can allow for some pretty powerful movements, including stuff that's strong enough to do something like lift an arm. Because the various pieces of machinery that Disney engineers were creating, they weighed a good amount of, uh, they had a good amount of weight to them, a good amount of mass to them. And pneumatic ability, uh, pneumatic systems weren't strong enough to move them, especially not smoothly. If you want to build a compressed air system that can move a significant amount of weight, chances are you're going to end up with an air catapult, which was not exactly what Disney was hoping for when he was thinking of these different designs. So Imagineers switched to these hydraulic systems, uh, and it also meant that they wanted to create more gradations of movement. They didn't want to just be on and off. They didn't just want to be open and closed or left or right. They wanted to have some different abilities. They wanted to create a lot of different potential movements within the limbs of characters. One of the uh, exhibits that they were working on for the New York World's Fair was the Carousel of Progress, which you can still see in certain Disney parks. The Carousel of Progress features multiple scenes of a family through different eras of human history, including near future, where you get to see the innovation of progress how systems have improved over time to make our lives more convenient and enjoyable. And all of these various exhibits at New York had different sponsors. So Disney was partnering with other companies that had a vested interest in the public seeing this stuff. So there were branded materials inside Carousel of Progress so that people would say, oh, you know what, I need to buy X kind of refrigerator because I want my life to be as convenient as it was for those robots we just saw. So in order to make this look convincing, they wanted the human characters to have very lifelike motions. Well, you can't do that with just the digital system. So they needed to go with an analog system. Analog means that you can have a variable element. It's not just on or off. That's what digital is. Either the signal's going or it's not. Variable means you can actually create variations. And you do this through voltage by changing the amount of voltage in a system. And by increasing it or decreasing it, you could create different ranges of motion within a properly designed system. So that's what the Imagineers started working on with both Lincoln and the Carousel of Progress. They wanted to create more sophisticated systems that would allow for this sort of realistic motion. And by pairing the hydraulic systems with this analog voltage system, they could then create a more uh, natural movement. Now, in order to encode that, they had to use varying tones 
on this magnetic tape. And to do that, they ended up having to use multiple tracks on a single piece of magnetic tape in order to conserve space, because otherwise you would have to have a reel for every single component that is controlled by some sort of hydraulic system. And that's just not feasible. So they ended up creating multi-track systems where they could record I think up to 24 eventually different tracks, but not all of those tracks were for the actual animatronic figures. Some of them were for theatrical elements like lighting cues or whether or not certain uh, like products would open, like the refrigerator door might open, a drawer might slide out, an element in the fridge might tilt so people can get a better look at it. All of those were their own separate little circuits. And they all needed to be programmed into the audio animatronic reels, which again were still using tones. So the sound department was still heavily involved in this. As you can imagine, this complicated things significantly once they got to the part where it was time to program the Carousel of Progress and the great moments with Mr. Lincoln. And I'll explain how some of that turned out in just a minute. But first, let's take another quick break and thank our sponsor. So when we talk about programming this system, where you've got all these different tracks that control these different elements within an animatronic uh, system, keep in mind that depending on how many figures you have and how many points of articulation they have and what they need to do, these could be incredibly complicated from a macro standpoint. Each individual figure might be fairly simple, but taken as a, as a whole, it gets to be enormously complex. One of the earliest ways that they experimented with programming was using silver paint. They used these old Moviola movie editors that were designed to edit film. But instead of that, what they did was they took this, this tape, and they would paint silver lines on it to create a circuit. And whenever the reading head would pass over the silver, it would create uh, an electrical circuit that then would send out as a command for the various action to happen. So let's say, again, that it's a, a parrot opening its beak. And you would use a little line of silver paint along the length of this tape to indicate this is where the beak needs to be opened. Because they were using animators to design this system in part, the animators loved it. They were using it very similar to the way they would edit animation reels. With animation, you think of the the work in terms of feet, not necessarily in seconds. So instead of saying, oh, I need this mouth to be open for two seconds, you might say, oh, I need this to happen for two feet of film. So you would literally mark out the spot on the tape where the action needed to start, and you would mark out the spot on the tape where the action needed to stop, and you would just connect those two points with some silver paint. And then when it would read through the system, it would play back that way. When it would hit that point in the tape, the action would happen. So as long as you either had all of your tracks on one tape, and they could do up to six tracks on this method. This was just the prototype method. If you had six different 
sets of actions all on their each individual lines. You had six contacts that could create the different circuits. Then you could program up to six different components of your audio animatronic scene using one reel of tape. And they'd all be synchronized because you would just measure it out on the physical tape and draw where you needed the elements to happen. So maybe you'd say, all right, well, in three seconds in, I need the bird to flap its wings. And at second number four, I need it to start talking. But by second number five, I need it to stop flapping its wings. But it keeps talking on and off until second number 10. Well, that's how you would mark it out on your magnetic tape. And you would just draw one line to be the control for the beak and another line to be the control for the wings. And as it would move through the Moviola editor and the contacts that the, the engineers had essentially added into this Moviola editor, it would play it back the same way every time. Now, this was not the system that Disney decided to use for everything. They, again, switched to an audio tone format instead of using lines of silver paint. The reason being that you could only play the tape so many times before the silver paint started to flake off. And once it started to flake off, then you no longer had a strong signal. You never didn't necessarily have the circuit completing anymore. And so you would get jittery motions or sometimes enough paint would peel off where you wouldn't even get the, res the result you wanted at all. So it wasn't a permanent solution, but it was an interesting step toward what they needed. When they went with the tones, they found that that was a better approach. But as they started programming the great moments with Mr. Lincoln, they started to run into some serious issues. The way they did this is they had editing machines and they had playback machines. The playback machines, all they could do was play the magnetic tape back again. And this was, uh, they, they would call these machines dummies because that's all they could do is just play something back. So they, they had more dummies than they had editing machines where they could write to magnetic tape. They would record to magnetic tape both the tones that would control the various animatronic actions, the lighting of the theater, any other elements that needed to happen within the theater. They would all be encoded on this magnetic tape as well. And they would also have the audio for the actual presentation. So in the case of uh, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, the various speeches that Mr. Lincoln delivers had to be on that magnetic tape as well. You would first produce an individual tape for every single one of those, and then you would end up combining those onto a master tape. Eventually, there's actually a step in between called a sub-master, but we're going to simplify for the purposes of this podcast. So that if ultimately you would end up with a master tape that would have everything you needed on it. You might imagine that having one master tape that has multiple tracks, numbering in more than two dozen in some cases, that you could run into some interference. And you would be right. It turned out that some of these, because of the different volumes that they recorded at, the tones would sometimes mask one another. And or other times they would activate more than one element and you'd end up with chaos so Mr. Lincoln might end up having a bit of a freak out on stage while delivering the Gettysburg Address. And that just doesn't convey the stately nature that you want when you're trying to reenact one of the most iconic moments in American history that there is. Having Abraham Lincoln's eyebrows go crazy all over his face while he's talking might be a little distracting. 
So it required a painstaking process of editing. They would get the magnetic tape. They would run it through the system using one of these dummies. They would take notes, copious notes, about everything that was going on with the performance of the the audio animatronic show, in this case, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. And anything that went wrong, they had to make note of, whether it was a hand motion or an eyebrow or the mouth wasn't moving in sync with the sound or maybe the sound itself was at the wrong volume. Whatever the problem was, they had to make note of it. And then they had to take that same magnetic tape back and figure out how they could fix it. Sometimes they could fix it by making a couple of tweaks. Sometimes it required re-recording an entire section. So it might be that you're recording a brand new section just to control the fingers on the left hand. That's how exacting this had to be. And again, you had to make sure that you were synchronizing it with everything else. And it may be that you would find that one element is slightly out of sync of everything else. You, you had planned it out, you plotted it, you recorded it. When you laid down the tracks, you didn't realize that they didn't quite line up the way you wanted them to. And that might require you to cut out one of the tracks and then splice it back in by hand cranking the system to the right starting point and adjusting it that way. So maybe you'd say, all right, well, the track for the left hand needs to start at second number 2.4. And unfortunately, it's starting at 2.8. And because of that, the left hand is making gestures 0.4 seconds after it's supposed to, and it looks ridiculous. You would have to go back and try and hand crank it to the spot where it needs to start and splice it back in that section, that track, back into the master uh, worst case scenario, scenario, you'd have to re-record the master and just make sure everything is lined up in its new orientation based upon the notes you made. To make matters even more complicated, they were using a sound studio that was busy during the day. So the only time the engineers could actually work on this project, which had to be done before the World's Fair opened, was at night. They would go to this recording studio at night that had its equipment on different floors. So they actually had to run cabling systems to go up and down floors so that they could connect the various parts that they were using in order to make these minute changes. It was an incredibly painstaking process to get the re the performance that they wanted, all using this combination of pneumatics, hydraulics, and solenoids to see if they can get the right sequence of movements to match the pre-recorded audio and give the experience that they intended to their audience. Programming this way took a lot of work. Uh, if you watch, there's a, a wonderful World of Color episode where they talk about the Disneyland presence at the World's Fair and the way that audio animatronics work. There's a point where Walt Disney walks up to one of his Imagineers, who's wearing this weird harness uh, that is a control system. It's directly connected to the father character of Carousel of Progress. So when the guy makes a big motion with his arm, you see the Carousel of Progress character make that same motion. And Disney refers to that as programming, but that's not actually how they programmed it. They programmed it more, more uh, granularly than that. They could control a character directly using this method, but that was only really good for one-on-one -on -one digital puppetry, as in you have a human controller actually manipulating the character at that very moment. If you wanted it automated, 
you had to go through this other very painstaking process. And this is pretty much how they used uh, audio animatronics for the next several years. They would develop lots of different rides that used audio animatronic figures, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Haunted Mansion, uh, rides like that, where you had some sophisticated movement, something a little more advanced than just a static character turning. A lot of the dark rides in Fantasyland are uh, more primitive and don't need to be audio animatronic because there's no real articulation with the characters. They're kind of static and they can move up and down or turn left and right, but they don't have any facial motion or their limbs don't really move in any meaningful way, uh, as opposed to characters that say, Pirates or Haunted Mansion. Some of those have much more sophisticated movements and needed the audio animatronic system in order to do it. To me, it's fascinating that they were able to do all of this using tones, whether it was to just create that binary system or the uh, analog system where you had the variable voltage that could create different types of movement. And I'm also fascinated by all the different people who worked on these systems, There were a ton of them who all contributed, and without them, these just wouldn't even be a reality today. Uh, They were able to make a huge impact at the New York World's Fair, and this really did cement Disney as being an innovative company, not just in movies and animation, but also in theme parks and experiences. Uh, It set them apart from their competitors. And it wasn't just the theming, which has always been one of Disney's strong suits, but the technology itself, the fact that the company was willing to be a pioneer in those spaces. So I find it one of the most interesting stories. And I love the fact that it also gives me the opportunity to touch on other elements of the mechanical and technological worlds, stuff like pneumatic systems, hydraulic systems, the concept of cams, the concept of solenoids, all of these elements are obviously uh, components of the audio animatronic systems, but also it's fun to have that opportunity to just touch on those in this episode and to tell you guys, you know, what those were and how they were incorporated into this audio animatronic system. So the next time you ride one of these rides, think about all the technology that went into it and the fact that it's just magnetic tape that's giving all the instructions and not through any sort of computer program, but literally through sound that the sound itself is what allows the circuits to complete. And it varies that voltage and it allows Mr. Lincoln to stand up as he addresses you. And here's where we get to my story of a funny little Disney world fail. This was at Disney world, not at Disneyland. And it was the first time my wife had ever been to Disney World. And I was so excited because if you've been to Disney World several times, after a while, you know what to expect. And while it is still an amazing achievement to have built an amusement park so uh, immersive and with such detail and to then staff it with people who have some of the best customer service uh, points in the world... That alone is amazing. But if you go with someone who has never been before and you've been several times, there's a special kind of joy there because you can almost experience Disney World for the first time by vicariously experiencing it through your friend who had not been there before. In this case, it was my wife. 
She had never been to Disney World. So I was having this wonderful experience of taking her to different rides, and she gets to see them for the first time, and she's blown away. And I remember how special it is, because, again, I've ridden most of these rides dozens of times. So for me, while I enjoy them, the special part had kind of worn off. Seeing it through her eyes brought it all back, and it was amazing. Then we go to the Hall of Presidents. And at the Hall of Presidents, uh, the curtains open. And if you've never been to the Hall of Presidents at Disney World, there's a point where curtains open up and you see all of the presidents of the United States. They're all there. Every single one who's ever sat as president is there animated, this audio animatronic. And they all do little weird things like they fidget. They look around. Some of them appear to be a little bored with what's going on. Some of them seem really engaged. It's kind of it's kind of charming. They introduce them one at a time. Well, Mr. Lincoln uh, sits in a chair, and then when it's his turn to actually address the audience, because he he first they introduce everybody, and everyone does a little gesture. They might nod or wave a hand, but ultimately Lincoln stands up and then delivers a speech to the audience. When the curtains open, Lincoln was already standing. He was not seated as he normally would be, which tells me that the hydraulic system for his legs had already activated. However, he was not standing tall. He was bent at the waist. So he's standing up, bent down as if he's tying his shoes, and his two arms are dangling at his sides, but they're still animated. So you still see them fidget and gesture when he's announced and the spotlight hits his chair, which he was not sitting in, so the spotlight's actually hitting behind where he was, his hand made a little motion. It was at that point that I expected someone from Disney, one of the cast members, to come down and and hit the stop on the show. But uh, they had not yet noticed the problem. And so I was starting to get the giggles a little bit. My wife was definitely getting the giggles, and my dad was encouraging it. Uh, My dad is... The ultimate dad joke dad. And I love him dearly. But I hear my dad just say, I begged them not to make an animatronic John Wilkes Booth. Completely inappropriate and hilarious and tragic and hilarious. So we're watching as Lincoln continues to gesticulate while bent over, staring at the floor. Uh, and then it gets to his speech and the... Uh, Music swells, and he starts to speak and move his arms more expressively, still bent at the waist. He does not stand up. It's at that point that a Disney cast member takes notice and rushes down and hits the stop button, which closes the curtains and says, Mr. Lincoln is not feeling very well. Please check back again later today. And as we walk out, I, you know, we start making other jokes like, is that my face on that penny? Little jokes about Lincoln bent over for some reason. And uh, it's unfortunate because that's my wife's first and first impression of the Hall of Presidents. That's her that's the memory she associates with it. And I know for a fact that I can never take her to the Hall of Presidents ever again and have her take it seriously at all. Whenever it gets to Lincoln, she's going to get the giggles and she's going to expect him to stand up and bend over at the waist and just stare at the floor for the rest of the day. Uh, so. These animatronics didn't always work perfectly. Sometimes some part of the system or other would fail. And once that happens, then you get these sort of experiences where 
maybe part of the animation just isn't working. It could be something as simple as an arm is not animating the way it's supposed to. Or it could be something a little more noticeable, like a character is bent over and slumped down because they don't have the, the proper pressure to stand up. Uh, it, it probably was just a valve that had failed to open. So there was probably some circuit where it had no longer was completing. And therefore, the hydraulic system could not actually activate through the upper half of Mr. Lincoln. So he couldn't stand up tall. That's, that's my guess as a, you know, armchair technologist taking a look at what happened. So that's it. That's how audio animatronics work. It is a really interesting system. I love the fact that it predates computer systems for theme parks. These days you're going to find much more complicated programming. There's going to be microprocessors and characters. Uh, I don't know for a fact that the characters they added to the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, for example, are more advanced versions. Like there's a Johnny Depp character that shows up three times in the new Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Uh, there's a Barbosa character. Jeffrey Rush's character from the movies is also in that. I suspect that those are updated systems that are not running on the old audio animatronic system. But that's just a guess. Uh, I do not know that for a fact. They are certainly much more sophisticated than the original Pirates of the Caribbean characters were. Now, there's a lot more stuff I could talk about. Like, I could talk about how Disney had to work on building a new type of material for these human figures called Duraflex. It's not the same thing that you find in cars uh, that have Duraflex bumpers. But they had to create Duraflex because latex was too delicate to work over and over, especially in an environment that had lots of oil and moving parts. Uh, so Duraflex was the thing that they had to create in order to keep a realistic skin-looking texture. But I figured that's for another episode further down the line. In the meantime, if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes, I should cover things, topics that you've always wanted to know about or people I should have on the show and interview. You should let me know. Send me a message. My email address is techstuff at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is TechStuffHSW. And remember, you can watch me live on Twitch.tv slash TechStuff when I record these episodes. There are people watching me live right now as I record this. Not as you hear it, but as I record it. And they're awesome. So come join the awesome people. We have a chat room. We, we chat it up. And uh, I would love to see you over there. So twitch.tv slash techstuff, you can see what the schedule is over there. I hope to see you there soon, and I'll talk to you guys again at the happiest place on earth, I hope, really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 